You're listening to the Living a Life Unleashed podcast. Welcome to the Living a Life Unleashed podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Bishop. Thanks for tuning in. If you're new to this podcast, welcome. I'm glad you're hanging out with us because each week I invite a guest onto the show to talk about a topic that is meant to be a catalyst for growth in our lives, to spark ideas, get unstuck, and gain new insights that compel us to action as we journey together to play full out and live fully into who we were created to be. And hey, thanks for tuning in. Thanks for rating this podcast. And of course, as always, thank you for sharing it with others. Well, on today's show, I'm excited because I've invited Amy Julia Becker, and she's the author of White Picket Fences, Turning Toward Love in a World Divided by Privilege. And we're going to talk about her new book. We'll talk about privilege and what it even means and how that word alone may already have some of us flinching. We will also talk about ways of identifying privilege, some things some of us may often not be aware of, and identifying the wounds of privilege and how to participate in the healing of those wounds. A little bit more about Amy Julia. In addition to White Picket Fences, she is also the author of Small Talk, Learning from My Children About What Matters Most, A Good and Perfect Gift, Faith, Expectations, and a Little Girl Named Penny, named one of the top books of 2011 by Publishers Weekly, and Penelope Ayers, a memoir. A graduate of Princeton University and Princeton Theological Seminary, her essays about faith, family, and disability have appeared in the Washington Post, USA Today, Christianity Today, The Christian Century, and online for the New York Times, ABC News, The Atlantic, Vox, and The Huffington Post. Amy Julia lives with her husband Peter and their three kiddos, Penny, William, and Marilee, in Western Connecticut. Amy Julia, welcome to the show. Thanks, Lisa. It's great to be here with you. Great to be with you. And in our emails back and forth, I just I wonder how many times like people do not put the Amy and the Julia together, and you probably have an immeasurable amount of grace for as many times as people kind of truncate your name. You know, I do sometimes curse my parents, even though I like my name. But um, when I was growing up, I lived in this little town in North Carolina, and my parents were both from Connecticut, and so they were very taken by the Southern idea of a double name. So they gave me the name Amy Julia. I was their oldest child. Um, But when we moved to Connecticut, I started going by AJ. And I did that for a long time. But it just felt kind of masculine and kind of truncated. And so I went back to Amy Julia as an adult, even though it means that I'm having to explain myself all the time, because it is a strange phenomenon to have two names as your first name. Well, thanks again for being a part of the Living a Life Unleashed podcast. I'm excited for listeners to just listen into our conversation about your book, White Picket Fences, that is coming out in October. So our listeners are going to get a head start on being able to hear a little bit about what it what it is about. But before we jump into that, I would love for our listeners to learn a little bit about Amy Julia, maybe a little bit about your faith background, your faith story, and, and your journey leading up to this point. Sure. Uh, Well, so as I said, I grew up in a small town in North Carolina. My family was, we were churchgoers and um, both of my parents were, you know, very 
eager to introduce us to Christianity, but I really did think of Christianity as church for most of my childhood until um, I was in high school and I got really sick. And um, I won't go into that whole story, but I was sick enough that I was in the hospital and really struggling and asking questions about who God was and if God was real for the first time, because it was kind of the first time I'd ever felt a need, like a pressing need. If there's a God who loves me, I really need that to be true. Um, and I was invited to a Young Life camp uh, during that time in my life, and I went. And um, it was a transformative experience for me in terms of truly um, coming to faith. And so all of these things that I had said for my entire life and, you know, prayers I had prayed and verses I had read and experiences even that I'd had became much more real. So the Bible really came alive to me and I really wanted to tell other people about this God who loved me. Um, and that changed my life, you know, throughout high school and college. And I even went on to seminary, um, and worked for a parachurch ministry as a young adult. Um, and then I, one other like super shaping moment um, of faith for me was when our daughter Penny was born, which is she's now 12 years old. So 12 years ago, she was born and she was diagnosed with Down syndrome shortly after she was born. And that just caused me to question all sorts of things um, and to recognize how much I expected God to do what I wanted in my yeah, life. And right. um and I did not, when Penny was born, want to have a child with Down syndrome. And um, so that was a, it was a lot of wrestling over that. But ultimately, there was also a lot of joy in coming to receive her as the great gift that she is in our lives. But also through that, to start having a more expansive understanding of what God is doing in lots of different people, not just in my daughter, but to really have a bigger picture of God's hand in um, the world and in people and in opening me up to the beauty um, of diversity and of all sorts of people all over the place. So lots of, you know, obviously the stories that I could tell along the way, but those are probably the, that point of coming to faith when I was at that young life camp and then of our daughter being born were really transformative for me. Wow. Wow. And just, you know, I know you've told your story about your daughter, Penny, several times. And I've, as I've listened into different uh, radio shows and TV shows you've been on, I just really, I love your authenticity because I think sometimes we're afraid to admit, hey, I, I really didn't want this scenario mm -hmm. in my life. And just what a gift it is that we can be honest with each other. That's like, right. And so just thank you. Thank you for that. And I know that uh, God has used Penny and a a lot of ways uh, in your life and your husband's life and your family's life to even create the ministry and the voice that you have. Um, even as it relates to this book, I think there that, that was influenced, I would guess, in some way uh, as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think Penny was an important part of my understanding of this topic of privilege um, in a new way. It was kind of a side door into the building, so to speak. But um, But at the same time, having a child with a disability uh, who also was a child with so many abilities and so many gifts to give, um, really changed me and the way I, and the way I see people. Yeah. Well, tell us what what inspired you to write. So you've written several books before. Why why white picket fences and and yeah why at this time is is this book critical? 
Well, so, you know, my last book came out four years ago, and that was a parenting memoir called Small Talk. When I was um, finished with that book, I thought I was going to write another more parenting-based book. I was working for a year on a book that was about children's books and reading out loud to our children. Um, and I, But I kept writing about books, and I was writing about, for example, um, one night I realized that our bookshelf for our kids, not for me personally, but for our kids, only had books that contained either animals or white characters mm. as the main characters. And I thought, why is that? And so I was writing about that, and I was writing about um, various aspects of the books we were reading to our kids and what they said about our society. And I started to realize, oh, wait, I'm not really writing about books here. I'm writing about childhood, my kids' childhood, my childhood. And ultimately, I thought, gosh, I'm writing about the things that are dividing us as a nation and have been for a long time. Um, so that was 2015, so a long time ago, that I, I realized I'm writing a book about privilege. And I thought I was writing a book wow. about children's books. Um but I do think it's a timely book right now because the past couple of years we have seen in the social media and in the uh, mainstream news coverage a lot of issues related to racial strife and division in our country, as well as just some of the immigration questions that we're facing, um, some questions that have to do with the rights of people with disabilities, um, rights of people of different religious backgrounds. Like, how do we do this American thing that we've been trying to do for so long of actually living together in a way that really honors each other and, um, yes, that acknowledges difference. Um, it doesn't pretend that we don't have some of these distinctions from one another, and yet where we can also find a common identity as Americans, and certainly for Christians, a common identity in Christ um, that then allows us to actually celebrate our differences instead of feeling threatened right. by them. So that's my hope for this book. So so privilege, it, it can be um, a word that, you know, people have a strong response to. So it, you know, and strong reactions as well. You just hear that word and it just conjures up, a, a, you know, emotions and thoughts for people. What, what do you mean when you use the word privilege and why do you think it does cause such a strong response in some of us? Well, what I mean when I use the word privilege is really unearned social advantages. So there are ways in which just by what we might call an accident of birth, the fact that we were born in this time and place gives us advantages that, another person born in a different time or a different place wouldn't have. We can also see that even in, within our own country and within our own states and towns and cities, that being born into a family with married parents, for example, just gives um, a, some stability and support that a kid who's born for whatever reason into a family with a single parent might not have. Um, and that also you know, plays itself out when it comes to disability, when it comes to race, when it comes to socioeconomics. Um, so that's what I'm talking about when I talk about privilege. Um, but I also think it's interesting. There's another way we use the word privilege, and it's also accurate, which is to say, like, I felt privileged to meet this person mm. or to have this opportunity, like that sense of feeling honored. And um, I think sometimes it can be confusing because you might be a privileged person in the sense of, again, having whether that's being white or being male or these different things that can give you advantages, but you might not feel privileged because yeah. your life feels hard and you've worked really hard for the things that you have. And so I think that can be confusing and can cause us 
to feel really defensive as if we haven't worked hard. It might feel like a threat or like an accusation. Um, when I think what we're talking about when we're talking about privilege is these unearned advantages that some people have in different areas. Um, and trying to think through why is that the case? How does it work? How does that work its way out in our society? Um, and is there, and what's a, what's a hopeful and generous response to that? Um, rather than a threatening or defensive response to that. I think about it in terms of like a Venn diagram, you know, lots of overlapping circles. And so um, for me as a white woman who is married and who also has had a like definite uh, economic stability for my life, my family has been in the United States since the 1600s, like various lines, you draw these circles on a map and I have lots of them that overlap. I have some um, people of color who are friends of mine in my life who similarly have had economic stability, married parents, you know, et cetera. And so they have this aspect of their identity in terms of their skin color, which has definitely led to some disadvantages in how they've been treated. Mm. But they also would say, yeah, I definitely have privilege in my life. It's, but for me, because of the white skin and the um, other aspects of just my history, I have even more of kind of a leg up when it comes to some opportunities that are um, available to me. Right, right. So how do we begin to, for people whose defenses may be up really quickly about the topic and say, you know, I'm not privileged, even though I'm a, you know, white male or white female or that, you know, what the, the tendency to be privileged might look like. How do we, how do we start opening up dialogue for people, for us to be able to see, well, you know what, my, actually, maybe I am privileged and this is the impact. Yeah, I do. I hope that's what this book is about, is trying to have like a gentle conversation. I think so often the way we talk about these things are pretty harsh. Um, but I do think the first step is just listening to say, so tell me what comes up in you when you hear that word. Like, why does it raise those um, whether you think of it as defenses or not, like, why do you not want to talk about it? Mm, <laughs> um, and obviously, good. if someone doesn't want to talk about it, they might not want to talk about it. But um, I do think sharing stories instead of telling people what to do, or feel or think is always really helpful. Um, and so that's what I've tried to do is to share my story and not to tell someone else what their story is, but to say, maybe you can find a way in here. Maybe there's something that relates to you. And then we can think and grow together. Um, I think it's also really important that we not be policing each other's words and mm. thoughts and feelings, mm. you know, where it's not like, I mean, in our society, we have this thing called political correctness. I think there's a lot of reason to try to be politically correct in our language in terms of honoring one another. But if we say the wrong thing and therefore we're like sent to the corner of the room with somebody like scolding us, well, yeah. that's not going to foster dialogue and conversation. And so trying to be gracious in the way we talk and listen to one another, I think is just also really important um, in terms of just lowering those defenses and actually moving forward. And we don't know what we don't know, right? And so we live yeah. in our own paradigm and, and even me, my own filter. And I have a couple really awesome African-American friends who I just adore. And I've just appreciated their graces. I kind of look like an idiot sometimes, you know, because I, 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 I only can see what I can see. And I've just appreciated there, and you mentioned the word grace a couple of times, that how do we have grace with each other to enter into this conversation and even consider that this exists? Like if we're not convinced that it does, even consider the possibility. And then, especially as followers of Christ, like how do we, like how do we engage in a, um, 
yeah, grace-filled, listening way rather than trying to prove that we're right or be defensive, but in, engaging conversation and, and, and just love each other and our humanity even. I feel the same way. I have a couple of um, friends, uh, African-American friend of mine named Patricia Raybon, who wrote the foreword for the book, has been so gracious to me in like reading this book and giving me comments and feedback where she says, you know, here's how that sounded to me. <laughs> I'm right. like, oh my gosh, right. I didn't mean that at all, you know, and um, but she trusts me enough to tell me when something is hurtful. And mm. I'm so grateful for that. And I feel like as the mother of a child with a disability, I've actually... I have friends who have used words or made assumptions towards me and really towards Penny that have been hurtful. And I've recognized, oh, okay, I can be gracious to them. Like, that's a choice I have um, that can help our relationship build. I know they're not trying to be hurtful to me or to Penny. Like, they have all good intentions. And I'm just so grateful for my friends um, who are people of color who've done that with me, especially when it comes to some of the issues surrounding race, because I feel like I still get it wrong often or misunderstand things often. Um, But I do have some friends in my life who are just lovely, um, wonderful human beings who love Jesus and are willing to give me the benefit of the doubt so that we can grow together. Which is so imperative. I said something really dumb the other day. It just came out of, like, I didn't have any, like, intention, meaning. It was just, like, programming from the past. I didn't mean anything by it, and it came out of my mouth. I was like, wow. Like, I just think there are even unconsciously things that we have adapted, adopted in our language that we're just, like, just having an awakening to the to the impact of that is is really has has been educational for me. Tell us a little bit about uh, you mentioned in your book you grew up in I think what you called an idyllic childhood, uh, growing up in a southern town. How did you come to a new perspective on what you thought was idyllic in that that southern upbringing? So yeah, I did. I grew up in this five thousand person town that's really beautiful, and um, I had a wonderful childhood where I always, especially since we moved, I think that made me feel even more nostalgic for it because it wasn't. I didn't have my adolescence there where you start feeling all angsty about the place that you're mm. from. Um, and then the first thing was when I was in college, actually, um, I took a number of African American studies classes, and I read a slave narrative um, called. Uh, by a woman named Harriet Jacobs. And when I read it, it actually took place in my hometown. And I never knew about this um, book. And but when I read it, I thought, oh, my gosh, the way she's describing my town, which still, you know, even though I'd grown up there, you know, 140 years later, Mm -hmm. um, it still had the same streets. And the courthouse was the same. And the green was the same. And the, you know, markers and boundaries were the same. And gosh, for her, this was a place that felt just incredibly oppressive, obviously, and dangerous and um, awful. And for me, it was just this beautiful place. So that was the first hint for me of, gosh, maybe there are a couple different ways to see my childhood town. And then as an adult, um, in the past couple of years, as I've been growing, um, teaching my own children and growing them up, um, I've been thinking about, well, what was wonderful? And there were some things that were wonderful about living in kind of a safe and secluded existence. Um, But there were also some things that were not so great about that. Um, I didn't learn as much about the diversity in the world as I could have. Um, Even though I lived in a town that was 50% African American and 50% white, we lived in a pretty functionally segregated way. Um, 
And so my experience as an adult has been to look back and say, gosh, um, my much of the goodness of my childhood had to do with the fact that this town was divided in racial ways um, and that it did not look the same, even for uh, some people who we knew because we had some African-American uh, people who worked in our house and really loved them. And I believe they really loved us. And yet there was still this great divide in our lives. Um, I thought back, I remembered a story of um, Caroline, uh, which is not her real name, but I call her that in the book, who worked in our house. And um, when she was about 70 years old, she called my father, we had moved away, and she asked him if he would be willing to send her some money so that she could buy a pair of reading glasses um, because she had never learned how to read as a child and she wanted to now as an adult. And when I first heard that story from my dad, I thought it was so beautiful because of her tenacity, just her determination as an older woman to take back what she had not had as a child. Mm. But then my second thought was, this is tragic Mm. that this woman was not given the education she absolutely deserved as an American citizen, um, you know, growing up in this country. And here she was every day working in my house while I was literally sitting in a chair curled up in the corner with a book. Um, So it became what had been a beautiful story to me became really a tragic one um, at the same time. So I think my view of my childhood was idyllic and now it's just um, complicated. I'm still really grateful for a lot of what I was given. And I also feel a lot of grief about um, some of those situations and just the circumstances in which I was raised. Right. So how can we begin to see the possibility that we are even privileged? What are some like questions we can ask of ourselves, some just some observations we can make? How how can you help us to start kind of engaging and going down that path? There's an exercise that um, has kind of fallen out of favor because it really is a way of exposing uh, to people of privilege that they are privileged. And so by necessity, if you do it in a group, it means that people who don't have as much privilege are literally left at the back of the room. Mm -hmm. But it's an exercise where there's a series of questions asked and um, you take a step forward if, for example, one of the questions would be, how many uh, did you grow up with more than 50 books um, in your house? like on the bookshelves, you take a step forward. Um, Did you grow up with um, an opportunity to travel outside of the United States? Take a step forward. Did you grow up feeling safe in your neighborhood? Take a step forward, et cetera. Um, And it's called a privilege walk, which actually would be something that um, people could literally just Google privilege walk and ask some of those questions. Because I think that can be eye-opening. Like, well, gosh, I never, who didn't grow up with 50 books or who didn't grow up traveling? You know, like to recognize, oh, I grew up with assumptions about what a quote-unquote normal life is. This isn't how everyone else grows up. Oh, having books on the shelf in my home, how did that affect what I thought was possible for me in school and therefore in the workplace? You know, so I think that is a, um, was a helpful starting point for me, certainly, to ask some of those questions. And again, not to try and do it from a position of like, oh, gosh, now I feel guilty because my parents read books to me. But more, oh, I'm grateful that I was given this. Some people aren't given this. How can I steward it well? How can I recognize that that was an advantage I was given and use it for good in the world? Um, 
without becoming having some sense of superiority about that, just to be grateful for it and to use it well. So how? Let's talk about that then. How practically? How how do we use that? By the way, I've seen that YouTube video and it's like super powerful. It's like mm-hmm. wow, very eye opening. So when our eyes are open, because you know it's one thing to recognize something and one thing, especially as followers of Jesus, to to then like kind of the then what? So I, I recognize this. I'm more aware of my privilege. It's not meant to make me feel guilty. It's just meant to open my eyes to to privilege. What, 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 now what do we do? Yeah. So um, I think the first thing we do is actually take some time to look at. Okay. So I've opened my eyes to privilege. How has that operated? What has that given me? Um, and are there any areas in which I need to confess? And I don't, again, say that from the um, shame and guilt perspective, but because I believe that confession is what opens us up to healing. Uh, I think that what often happens when we have a life of privilege is that we really want to hold on to it and we get very worried about losing it, um, whether we're conscious of that or not. But I think that's a lot of, you see, um, especially as a parent, that sense of, I have to have the best school for my kid and I have to have the best activities and I have to have this, that, and the other thing, which often mean I'm continuing or perpetuating a cycle of cutting my family off from families that don't have as many opportunities and advantages. So I do think there's a role for confession um, and prayer. And then ultimately of saying, okay, um, God, what do you have for me in this? Mm. And for me, um, what that has led to is a prayer from Ephesians chapter 3. And Paul is praying for the Ephesians, and he has a a prayer that says, um, I pray that God would strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And then he goes on and he says, and I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and high and long and deep is the love of Christ. So there's this image of power and of love um, and of being rooted in the love of Christ. But then what really struck me about that is it says together with all the Lord's holy people that we are not meant to be rooted in Christ or operating out of the Spirit's power alone, but actually together, um, that God wants to work within and among us. So I think for Christians, yes, we need to do some like individual work in this area to acknowledge privilege and even to confess the ways that it has been distorting our understanding of humanity or even the actions we've taken. But beyond that, it's praying for ways to actually join together with other people in order for God's love to be at work to change things. And I think that can happen through churches. I think it can happen through nonprofit organizations. I think it can happen in schools. Um, But there's a sense of like, each of us individually doing something is great, but us collectively changing the way we see things, the way laws are written, the way politicians are, um, you know, representing the people, the things we want, the way housing and schools and, you know, all these institutions are um, changed. I think that is, that comes when we actually band together um, and start trying to address some of the problems that come up when we are divided among, you know, on these kind of privileged lines. Um, yeah in our culture. One thing that you say in your book, and we'll wrap up here um, in a minute, is the only way healing can happen is if the people who have been excluded and marginalized are willing to forgive and trust people like me. 
Say more you about know, that. Yeah. Yeah. It was such an interesting thing for me to recognize that um, for any of us who can say, yes, I have privilege and it has given me advantages that other people don't have. And that's not fair. Um, and that's not right. For any of us who can say that we then, and want that to change, I think we also, I found myself in a position of being like, but I don't, how can I change that? Um, what can I do about that? And some of what I can do is actually like build relationships with people who are not inside this wall of mm. privilege. But that's kind of presumptuous for me to think I can go out on the street and like find some person who's different than me and all of a sudden they want to be my friend right right Um, like who am I I mean it really is this strange position of vulnerability and weakness Hmm. to be a person of privilege who wants to move outside of those bounds um it's I think that probably is part of why it can be fearful to want to move outside of those bounds um and yet there's also a sense again of if I can trust that God is a God of grace and forgiveness um, who leads his people in that way, um, then, okay, I'm going to trust that um, it might not be easy, but uh, there might be, and I know that there are, I mean, my goodness, there are so many um, people who are willing to build relationships across the social lines that we have often said um, divide us. And I'm really, really grateful for that and have really benefited um, from that in my own life. But I think uh, acknowledging that position of, of weakness and vulnerability is certainly part of recognizing that, um, overcoming the problem of privilege is not about privileged people being, um, more beneficent. Like it's not about superior, like superiority and just like, Oh, I'm going to give my money away so that it helps quote unquote the poor. It's Mm -hmm. like, no, 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 this is a level, like I want the playing field to be level and I want to see you eye to eye and recognize that I do have things I can give, but I am here because I also have things I need to receive. And so it's not a position of superiority, but a position of humility um, and of a desire for a gracious exchange um, from one person to another. Wow. Wow. That was just poetically and beautifully said thanks so much for hanging out with us you guys white picket fences is available in october so you're getting a little sneak peek here and amy julia really wrote this book um, in a way that is inviting and causes us to consider this idea of privilege and invites us into being part of the solution again as as followers of jesus that's our call that's our command that all men all women are created in the image of god in the image of god he created all of us. Well, Amy Julia, tell us how we can connect with you on social media. How do we how do we keep track and what you're up to? Well, I have a website. It's amyjuliabecker.com and there's information about the book on the website. Um, and then I have a Facebook author page. One of the nice things about having a name like Amy Julia is that no one else has it. So I'm pretty easy to find. So yeah, I've got, um, you know, Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and it's all just Amy Julia Becker. Um, and I would love to connect with anyone in any of those spaces. Awesome. Well, once again, thanks for joining us. And listeners, thanks again for tuning in to another episode of the Living a Life Unleashed podcast. I'm rooting for you. I'm cheering you on. And I look forward to having you tune in next time.